If you are of a particular age, you remember Bob Ross and his happy little trees. The thing about Bob Ross that impresses me is he wanted the viewer slash painter to succeed. It didn't matter what size canvas or how many brushes you had or even if you had the same colors. Do the best you can with what you have. Take pride in the work you do and grow from that experience to be better the next time. Bob's main point is you don't have to be a painter to think like a painter. Just as with knitting or sculpting or wood carving, there are basic skills, then there are advanced skills. Cooking and baking and pastry have them, those skills, but I want to talk about how to use the skills you have to take a good recipe to another level. My point on this episode is you don't have to be a chef to think like a chef. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 123. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. We're talking cooking today, and that ties into my cookbook, Cooking for Comfort, Available on Amazon or from my blog post, culinarylibertarian.com slash cooking for comfort. I know the mention of Bob Ross to pretty much anyone who knows almost always gets a smile, probably a giggle, and maybe a grimace. He had that late night FM DJ voice talking about his happy little trees or his happy little sky. But just like his paintings or Granny's Knitting or Indian Cooking Guest Azur's Home Cooking, there is a skill beneath the obvious that takes the simple and makes it superb. Now, I'm no art critic. And I don't know if Bob Ross originals have any value, but his lessons did. It didn't matter if you were painting for the first time the day you watched him or had been painting for a lifetime. It didn't matter much to him what you had other than the desire to create a painting. Now, I've talked on several episodes a bit here and there about the comparisons between crafts of skill and cooking. And I think I might have mentioned that the skills of painting or wood carving or knitting seem less critiqued than the skill of cooking and baking. I'm pretty sure that has almost everything to do with the single difference of the food gets eaten. A poorly knit sweater will still keep you warm, even if you don't want to wear it. An ugly painting is easy to overlook. Food has an aesthetic, of course, but also taste. 
It is twice measured, so it is twice judged. It is little wonder cooks and bakers of all skills are anxious when it's time to serve the food. If I haven't said so before, I am now. Recipes as a list of ingredients are just that. Words on a page. Let's make a crude comparison to those ingredients and the colors on Bob's palette. There they are. Now, make something. I could no more make a painting armed with a full palette and tools than I could put an automobile engine back together. I would have no idea where to start, what to do first. I suspect that it is a common feeling among cooks who read and follow recipes. Now, I follow recipes. I also look at the procedure to determine if I can make it better than what they have written. I think that is exactly the spot the eager hook screams, How am I supposed to do that? That is a fabulous question. There are a few answers, but the one that rules them all is, you do that the same way you get to Carnegie Hall. Practice, practice, practice. At this point, you might be thinking this is impossible. How are you supposed to practice when you don't even know what sport you're playing? You might feel so overwhelmed that you don't know where to start. In one trip to the stove, you're going to take the skills and knowledge you already have and make a better meal. Let's start with something simple like a yellow squash casserole. Now, I in, in my house, we, we make one. I've taken it from the interwebs, from a popular, anyway, uh, cook and blog and made it my own. Now, you are going to make it your own. Here's what you need. Six cups of diced yellow squash, half a red onion, cut into strips, half a cup of sour cream, a cup of grated cheddar cheese, half a cup of toasted breadcrumbs, butter, salt, and pepper. You don't have to write that down, because we might change it. The basic process makes a fine dish, and I'm going to go through that. Saute the squash and onions in the butter for about 20 minutes to release the water. Uh, while that's happening, cover the pan, uh, keeping the heat at medium, and that heat and the steam created will help draw out more water. After the squash has lost much of its water and some of its stiffness is going to get kind of limp, put all of that into a colander which is inside of a stainless steel bowl, and then put a plate just big enough to fit on top of the squash, on um, squash, and then put a can of tomatoes or a can of beans or something on top of that to give it a little bit of weight to press it down and push out some of the water and let that sit there about 20 minutes. While the squash is draining, in another bowl, combine the sour cream and the grated cheddar cheese, Put that in a bowl big enough to hold all of those ingredients. Add the squash mixture to that. Mix it all together well. Season it. Put it into a casserole dish. 
Top it with those breadcrumbs, cover with foil, and bake for 25 minutes. For the last five minutes, remove the foil to let the breadcrumbs brown and toast. Now, I know I went through that very rapidly, but really, this is the basics, and we're going to figure out how to make it better. Now, as it is, it's a fine dish. It's, a, it's not a main course. It's a good veg side for whatever your main course would be. And really, what's to go wrong? We have cheese and sour cream and breadcrumbs. I want to set the expectation correctly. The room to grow in a dish such as this isn't grand as far as flavor goes, but we have an opportunity to work on some skills, and we're going to see how that's going to play through. Let's look at it like a Bob Ross canvas. The ingredients are our palate. Think about the flavors like a painter appears to think about that palette. Yellow squash doesn't have a lot of flavor all by itself. It has some, and it's a subtle flavor. Sautéed onions also don't have a lot of their own flavor. They've given that up in the cooking process. So the main thing here is the cheese and the fat. That's one of the ways we're going to start seeing our cooking in different ways. Let's look at the dish with new names for the ingredients. The vegetables, the fats, the crunch, the seasonings, then there's something missing. Flavor. Think of that painted canvas or that painting canvas. There are the paints, there's the canvas. The difference is colors. Texture, visual texture, is up to the painter, and that's the visual contribution, eyeball flavor, so to speak. Our counter of ingredients is our palette. Change the ingredients, and it's like changing the colors of the paints. Turn that yellow squash into zucchini, and you have a new dish, or you have a new painting, or you have a new appearance of a painting, even if it's the same one. In my view, zucchini has a bit more flavor than yellow squash. Now, that's a shade of color thing, literally, um, but also figuratively in that we're changing the ingredients, so we're getting a different flavor. Each color or ingredient will engage with others, either the colors or ingredients, in different ways. So, you know, if you blend, I don't know, if you blend colors, you get a different color, and that's going to add some interesting aspect, or maybe not, to your painting. Same thing with our food. We're going to combine ingredients, we hope, in interesting ways that are pleasant. Interesting is not pleasant, is not pleasant. So I think zucchini is a great match for fresh turmeric, and yellow squash is a great match for lavender blossoms, and if you haven't, even the... Uh, if you haven't ever seen lavender, the plant looks a little bit like rosemary. And then on from the top of it comes this really long stick. And at the end of the stick are the lavender blossoms. Uh, the blossoms, of course, are fairly famous for being parts of a tea or a herb mix called Herbes de Provence or for sachets for your, um, you know what sachets are for. The leaves are also an herb, and they have a very different flavor from 
the flowers, they have that, they have a, there's a, the, the flowers have a lavender, of course they do. They have a lavender aroma that's behind all the floral. That sounds kind of like a weird thing to say. If you smell a rose, you have to smell a lot to get to what the rose really is after the aroma. The lavender flower has a lot of aroma, but behind it is this other layer of, 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 of well, aroma is what it is. But there's a flavor to the leaves that's really, it's a great, great flavor. goes really well with, say, venison, which is another show, or yellow squash. How do I know that? Well, I've tasted them. Now, what if you don't like that? Don't do it. I realize that sounds curt and flip. When a cook is reading a new recipe, there is a feeling that the words on the page are gospel. No alteration is tolerated or the ingredient police will appear. Now, I've seen cooks struggle with this. It's a real concern centered, I think, on a worry that the dish will fail. And if it fails, it's because the recipe wasn't followed to the letter. Now, that's a legitimate concern, and I want to see if we can work through that concern. Let's turn from paintings and focus a bit on food more. Suppose instead we are making guacamole, and the recipe reads, add cilantro. Well, there is a one in four chance that one of you hates cilantro. Can't stand it. Now, the choice here is... Don't make the guac or alter the recipe. The same idea applies to all the cooking you do. I've mentioned that there wasn't a lot of room to make this casserole dish better, but there is some. On the last version of it, I buttered the inside of the casserole dish and dusted it lightly with breadcrumbs, kind of like Grandma used to do with her cake pans. I added some herbs to Provence to the squash as it was cooking, and that does include lavender flowers. Uh, increased the quantity of sour cream, because, you know, sour cream used bacon fat, of course, and butter. Butter and veggies are great friends. They love each other very much. Uh, and to sauteed the vegetables in that butter and bacon fat and added some breadcrumbs to the mix after it was all assembled, but before I put it into the casserole. The final product was a bit more cohesive, which means it held together a bit better than the first dish. Other alterations could include making individual ramekins, so a single serving, kind of you know a nicer, elegant appearance. Uh, putting a yolk or two into the sour cream cheese mixture, which would give the whole thing a richer, custardier texture. Uh, a couple of ounces of diced cream cheese added to the mix would also make the dish creamier. Let's see if I can demystify some of recipe reading. First off, recipes are a list of ingredients followed by a procedure. This isn't a Lego set. Legos must be assembled exactly and precisely as described. Since the recipe is a list of ingredients and a procedure, it can be changed, altered, amended, reduced, or expanded, or almost entirely wholly ignored. 
even the recipes in my cookbook. The easy way to get into this conversation is talking about herbs and spices. They are the flavor. In some cases, they are a vital part of the flavor, say a curry rice or a saffron rice, but most times they're they're, they're, they're a shade in the background on the painting that were it not there, its absence would noticeably detract from the whole thing. And so that's what, that's what herbs and spices do for us. They balance out the dish and give it layers of flavor that we appreciate. And only when they're not there the next time we say, wow, hmm something's different about this and that's that's what they're doing then there are the vegetables now i refer to them as aromatics herbs are also aromatics but there's there's a, a cooked delineation here they are both an eating part of the dish but they also the vegetables surrender the flavor which form a flavor foundation the last part is the main ingredient and in this case the main ingredient happens to be also the vegetable which isn't really an aromatic the onion is the aromatic then there are the carriers of the flavor that's what fats do this might be harder to visualize in the yellow squash casserole the sour cream is a flavor carrier and also a flavor contributor uh, in a soup the liquid Cream or broth is the flavor carrier. For a meat, a steak perhaps, it is both the meat itself and the sauce. If you have a sauce, A1 doesn't count. So let's turn that casserole into a soup. At its most basic, add the onions and the yellow squash to a pot of water, bring it to a boil, reduce it to a simmer, and cook the soup until the vegetables are done. Check the seasoning, portion into bowls, and add a dollop of sour cream and some grated cheese and maybe a hunk of bread instead of breadcrumbs. Okay, well, that's a soup. It won't be a brilliant soup, but it'll be a soup. Let's make it a better soup. We can change the water into something more flavorful. Chicken stock or a well-made vegetable stock. Cream, which has a mild flavor of its own, is a spectacular vehicle to carry flavors. We can also add some aromatics. Garlic is a good one, and garlic gets along with nearly every vegetable there is. The standard aromatic mix is carrots and celery and onions. That's called mirepoix. So carrots and celery added to this would be a nice addition. Fennel or parsnips would be a nice flavor foundation, adding some alternate flavors, which also give it a... So think about the flavors we're putting in early. So we're putting in the onions, which is part of the dish, the celery and the carrots, we're building a flavor foundation, and that's pretty good. Well, let's add more to that foundation. So the fennel and the parsnips is a bigger foundation. We're making this flavor base stronger. Now, there are things I wouldn't add, like turnips. Turnips have a pepperiness to them. Uh, rutabaga falls apart. That's going to end, in, which isn't a bad thing, 
by itself, but it may not be the thing we want in the soup, but it could be. Um, so as a flavor foundation, the things that our carrots aren't really neutral, but when you mix them all together, then we're getting in some neutrality. You could add peppers here. Uh, red peppers probably would be better, but green peppers would be nice. Yellow peppers have a mildness to them, and peppers have a ton of flavor. That could be part of the flavor foundation. Peppers have a tendency also to want to just take over the party, so that may be a reason to avoid them. We have all of our aromatics, and we've added some of that to bolster our base for a strong foundation, but how do we get that flavor out? What do we do? Well, heat. Well, there's a couple ways. Boiling is heat, and it was enough for a soup, but was it sufficient, and could we do something more to get more flavor out of that. So cooking vegetables does something to them. Well, that's like, duh, no kidding. That's not a surprise. That's some, there's, there's something in the structure of the plant that changes when the water in the plant starts to turn to steam. The cell walls, this is starting to sound like science class, I know. Cell walls break down and release the water they're holding but also end up making the vegetable tender because in the process of that hard vegetables like that carrot or that parsnip, the cellulose is breaking down. The more stuff's going on science but we're getting a tender vegetable. In the process of all that happening, they're releasing the water, they're becoming tender and releasing flavor, and that's what we're looking for. So um, most plants have natural sugars. Sugars are going to caramelize. Caramel is flavor. Now, the sugars don't have to look like creme brulee on top to have flavor. And we have those herbs and spices to give more flavor. But remember, the flavor we're looking for is the foundation. Heat for flavor building is going to be higher than boiling. And that means it's a dry heat. Oil is in a pan is dry heat. It's dry heat because there's no liquid. Even though the fat will end up looking like liquid because of the heat, water can never reach 400 degrees or more, and that's why oil is a dry heat cooking method, even if it can, you know, coat your skin. Not hot, by the way. Don't do that. So, dry or wet, Cooking is not just a matter of semantics. Since we know that water or milk or cream or diced tomatoes are or have water, those additions will take the heat out of the pan, and now we are limited to the physics of that product going only to not more than 212 degrees. Up here, it's like 207. Now, I'm going a bit ahead of myself, but I want to make the point plain that once something liquid is added, and liquid can take the form of other things other than just actual liquid, the dry heat cooking stops, but cooking doesn't stop which means flavor development doesn't stop. Roasting or baking, depending on what's happening, is low heat. Unless you're doing something at 500 degrees, then that's, well, that's, high. that's hot and dry heat. It happens that it is also slow heat, that roasting or that baking, when we're making, say, our casseroles. 
cold smoking, the way cold smoked salmon is prepared, is low, very low, and slow heat, which frankly isn't heat at all. It's about 40 degrees. So what is high or fast heat and how does that help us? What can we do with it? Sautéing is fast heat. I'm all I'm inter-exchanging inter fast heat and high heat. Grilling can be high heat. Searing is high heat. High heat or fast heat uh, usually starts somewhere in that 450 degree range. It can be 400. This isn't a this isn't a firm thing, but it's definitely hotter than 350 and certainly hotter than 212. In the beginning of this episode, the procedure for the yellow squash casserole included cooking the squash cubes on the stovetop. In common parlance, anything in a pan that is not more than two layers deep is called sautéing. It's not so, but that's what it's called. The less appealing phrase, and the more correct one, is sweating. That doesn't really sound very appealing. Ah, uh, what you doing, Hank? Oh, I'm sweating my veg. Well, I think I'll pass. Thank you very much. Sauté means to jump, as in the pan is so hot the food jumps out. Now, who cares? That's really not practical. More useful is that the pan is hot enough that the food browns faster than the water coming out can collect and pool in the pan. When the squash is overcrowded in that pan, and it's going to be in this casserole, there is no way for the water to evaporate faster than it's coming out of the vegetable. Getting the squash brown for that casserole dish is not part of the plan. Removing the water is part of the plan, so if it doesn't saute, air quotes, it doesn't matter. But let's use a small amount of that squash. A hot pan, some fat we prefer, which will not be whole butter, and some flavor. The reason why it's not whole butter is whole butter has trapped inside of its fat cells water of a kind. And also got it's gonna have it has some milk in there, it has casein in there, and when the butter gets really hot, the casein starts to burn, which actually tastes really good. It's called brown butter. It can go from burn to nice and brown to burnt, and then we have made trash. So the whole butter until the end of the dish, then that's a different story. So got a hot pan, fat we prefer, not butter, and a little bit of our veg. For as similar as they seem, Yellow squashes and zucchini are almost never interchangeable, at least in my opinion. Now, that's a preferences caveat, not a fact caveat. I like yellow squash with red onions, some garlic, basil, or pesto, and maybe some grated Parmesan cheese. Unlike the casserole or the soup, high heat cooking can present the greatest challenge to the cook. Ingredients have different amounts of easily available water. Yellow squash and zucchini, onions mostly too, 
easily surrender the water. Parsnips and carrots, not so much. If we use the first soup idea, put everything in the pan and cook, we might have a hot, passable dish, and it may lack the depth of flavor we could get with a slight change to the procedure. The think as a chef part is to know that the carrot surrenders water more slowly than the squash. How do I know this? The carrot is harder to cut. Now, you know the carrot is harder to cut. You may not have known that that meant the cellulose that makes up the carrot is holding on to that water greedily because the cellulose does not want to soften. The order of ingredients into the pan matters. Woody ingredients first. So, carrots and parsnips, they're first into the party. Sweet potatoes can be woody, but generally are not added to a saute. They can be. Next would be the easy to caramelize vegetables, which would be mostly the onions or leeks in the onion family. Uh, scallions, well, they're in the onion family, but I think I would save scallions out for the end because they offer a nice fresh flavor that would offset the cook part, and that's where we get contrast. Um, garlic is in the onion family, but because garlic is generally going to be cut so small, those small pieces will burn rapidly, which is something we want to avoid. So garlic would go at the end of the high heat cooking, just before we add whatever our liquid ingredients are going to be. Uh, the last in line before the garlic, uh, in the pan are the soft veggies like our squashes. Uh, also, uh, mushrooms would be in that category. They're soft veggies. Mushrooms have a tremendous amount of water to release. The water just has to be coaxed out. So that leaves some gray area. For you listeners who don't generalize well, and I don't either, so it's okay, and prefer specifics, fella would be one which can be added at any stage. That didn't help, did it? Why is that the case? What happens? Think like a chef part B is, what do you want of your final dish? Now, that's like asking, what do you want the painting to look like before you make it? Bob Ross will point out that the palette knife gives a visual texture to the mountains. But where does the mountain go? They have a substance to them and they can be seen. You can see the mountain. Knowing where it goes on the canvas impacts the rest of the canvas. Knowing what you want from your final dish is asking what flavors do you want to have at the end of the cooking. Do you want the fennel to have a nice, muted, sweet, subtle flavor blending with everything else in the foundation? Or do you want that, well, it's kind of an anise flavor. You want that bright, the, the, the crunch of the fennel and that bright anise flavor, which kind of tastes like early May to be part of your dish? I don't know. It's your dish. You need, these, are, these are the questions you would answer thinking about what you're making. 
visualized the casserole. The procedure read, cut the yellow squash into large dice. What if we cut it into small dice? If from each large dice we got eight small ones, that's more surface area, which means there's more yellow squash guts exposed to the heat to release the water. Because there is all that water is why we drain the squash before completing our dish. To get the most out of our high heat, a small dice allows the veg to cook, develop some color, and for the water to come out. This is a good basic plan for getting some color on the food which turns into flavor, and with any good plan, there are exceptions. What if you don't want small dice or color? This is an area full of possibilities and experimentation and learning and that a cookbook written can address them all. All the cookbooks written can't address them all. How many ways can you create visual texture with paint and a canvas and a palette knife? I have no idea. But more than Bob could show in 21 seasons of a show, probably. Cook what you like. How do you know what you like? Make it. What if you don't like it? Try it again. Now here's the rub. You have discovered one of more than one way to make one specific dish with one specific ingredient. What you have learned may not completely correspond to your next attempt with that same ingredient. Zucchini, medium diced, sautéed in coconut oil, and fresh turmeric and tomatoes is a stunning side dish, personally. That same zucchini and turmeric and tomatoes as a zucchini noodle dish may be terrible. Worst zucchini dish ever. The learning curve isn't as steep as it might seem, and that's only due to the amazing other ways to use that same ingredient. It is a permutations problem, and there are thousands of other opportunities. There's a chance some of you are throwing your hands up saying, Reed, you've been no help at all. You might be thinking you are going to ruin whatever hits the pan, and all you've made is trash. You're not battling orcs. Thinking like a chef turns into cooking like a chef. Use your eyes and your nose. If you smell something start to burn, take the pan off the heat and add a tablespoon of water. Water is nothing, but it does take the heat out of the pan and it buys you a minute of time. And since you aren't battling orcs, you have the luxury of learning and growing. Orc battles are usually short, and in the end, someone or something is dead. Orc battles are brute force. Cooking doesn't respond well to brute force. The food and the heat need the cook to conduct them like Keith Lockhart conducted the Boston Pops, making each ingredient the best it can be. 
Now, I know that sounds like a lot of pressure. Holy moly, you got to be a conductor? But this is a slow walk, not a run. Cooking for better flavor is a Zen thing. And it's not a destination, but a journey. And as you gain skills, you will see where you can add to other skills. Now that you've listened this far, here is my nickel's worth of free advice. Read the recipe, but really, focus on the procedure. Visualize yourself performing each cooking stage or each stage in the procedure. If it's just gather your stuff. Where's your stuff? Go get it. What are the smells and the aromas as you're doing the dish? What does the pan sound like? What's the sound of the ingredients cooking? What do you want the ingredients to look like before the next step happens in the pan? When Bob asks where we're going to put the mountain, that's what he's asking. What do you want the final painting to look like? Let's take a moment out for a word from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. My next piece of free advice is become more discerning in the cookbooks you buy or the blog posts you read. A list of ingredients is boring. What does the procedure teach you? If the procedure is do this, then after one minute, do that. Then after two minutes, do something else. Put the book back. That author has no way of knowing how long it will take you to do those things in your house. What that procedure really is telling you is this is how long it took us to do this in the sterile environment on this professional stove when we were trying to write this recipe for you. That isn't useful information. If the cookbook author can't be bothered to teach you how to cook, and you shouldn't be bothered to have to buy the book. If you find you still have questions, come to the Eating Liberty Facebook group. I'll put a link on the show notes page. That's my group. Ask questions. I'll answer them. The wonderful thing about cooking is there's always a way to grow even if it is on a personal level, and even if everyone eating can't tell the difference. You'll know it was better than the last one, and you'll also know how to make it better again, even if they can't tell the difference. And that's what matters to the heart of a cook. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll add some related show links to the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 123. Uh, in particular, I can I know for sure there is uh, a soups episode, which goes into really good detail about getting flavor, even in the high heat stage, because that's one of the ways to make uh, soups 
just sing is draw the flavor out in the high heat stage. I mentioned a few episodes back that my youngest daughter was gifted a subscription to a kid's cooking service. This company sends a box of laminated recipe cards, uh, an apron, a patch to iron on the apron, uh, so that's cute, but really easy to follow procedures for an appetizer or a first course, a main course, and a dessert. Um, not all the desserts are baking. There is some baking involved in some of them. Uh, she made raviolis, which included making the pasta. She did that. She made kid-friendly tiramisu. Uh, she had a blast, learned some skills, and was proud of her accomplishment. What more could a dad want? This service is now one of my affiliates because I am very impressed with the effort they put in to make the kids succeed with these dishes, to grow their skills, and to feel proud that they made something. If your kid likes to cook, use my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash radishkids. That's culinarylibertarian.com slash raddish, R-A-D-D-I-S-H-K-I-D-S, or click the links on the show notes page. Please share this post on your social media feeds and like them when you see them. Also, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcatcher, be it Apple Podcasts or what have you. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.